the European Reformation solidified the cultural structure that the Puritans would bring to the New World years later. Their mission was to declare Christ's gospel of the kingdom to the new nation by preaching the whole counsel of God, beginning with the cure for men's souls. A Royal Covenant reading coming from Jeremiah. Jeremiah and chapter 8. I'll begin in verse 4. In verse 4, Jeremiah and chapter 8, verse 4, through the end of the chapter, Verse 22, Jeremiah 8, 4 through the end of the chapter. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, he says, Moreover, thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Shall they fall and not arise? Shall he turn away and not return? Why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast deceit. They refuse to return. I hearkened and heard, but they spake not aright. No man repented him of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his course as the horse rusheth into the battle. Yea, the stork in the heaven knoweth her appointed times, and the turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the time of their coming. But my people know not the judgment of the Lord. How do ye say? We are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us. Lo, certainly in vain made he it. The pen of the scribes is in vain. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord. And what wisdom is in them? Therefore will I give their wives unto others, and their fields to them that shall inherit them. For every one from the least, even unto the greatest, is given to covetousness. From the prophet, even unto the priest, every one dealeth falsely. For they have healed the herd of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore shall they fall among them that fall In the time of their visitation, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. I will surely consume them, saith the Lord. There shall be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. And the leaves shall fade, and the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. Why do we sit still? Assemble yourself, and let us enter into the defensive city, and let us be silent there, for the Lord our God had put us to silence, and given us water of gold to drink, because we have sinned against the Lord. We looked for peace, but no good came, and for a time of health, and behold, trouble. And the snorting, the snorting of his horse was heard from Dan, the whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones. For they are come and have devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those that dwell therein. For behold, I will send serpents, cockatrices among you, which will not be charmed, and they shall bite you, saith the Lord. When I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint in me. Behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people, because of them that dwell in a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities? The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. 
for the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black. Astonishment had taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Mark writes to us in the second chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, beginning in verse 13 through verse 17. By the same Spirit, so does Mark write. And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician. But they that are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower there fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now the European Reformation gave way to a new understanding of how the church was to function. Also, it gave a new understanding of the church's nature and its mission. The reformation of the church included the reformation of not only the church, but the entire societal order. There was to be no compartmentalization. There was to be no segregation between the sacred and the secular because they understood that God owned it all. All aspects of society were to be transformed by the transforming power of God through the declaration of His Word. Now, this reformational idea was reconstructive in that it would engage every human institution and element of civilization, and by declaring the truth of God's Word, there would be this transformation from what it was, a fallen world, into what it should be, according to the dictates of God's law order. It was to be a new Eden, where righteousness and equity and justice would resound and where it would be found. Now, this transformation was not simply a focus on the transformation of the culture initially, but the transformation had to begin with the individual. It always begins with the individual. The souls of men and women had to first be cured if any transformation of the culture could take root. Once the individual was transformed by the renewing of his or her mind, the transformation would then move into the family, would engage the family, then the church, then the city, and finally the ultimate goal of this transformation was to be this comprehensive, powerful transformation of the entire nation and then the world. But it begins with the individual. All of life, beginning with the individual, was to be transformed by the gospel of the kingdom which declared that the king had come at his incarnation in order to reclaim what Adam had lost in Eden. As both Calvin and later Abraham Kuyper would say, quote, there is not a single inch in the entire universe which God does not say, this belongs to me. Everything belongs to God. 
The work of the Reformation was not without its problems and setbacks, and yet not only did the Reformers set the stage and plot the path for Western civilization to fully develop, but without the work of the Reformation, Puritan and colonial America would not have been the structuring power that it was for its early American liberation, because it was the Puritans, and to a very great extent the original colonists, that were the heirs of the Reformation's ideas of liberty, law, righteousness, and justice. You see, without the fathers of the Reformation, like Calvin and V. Ray, Farrell, Bullinger, Knox, and Beza, names that are, for the most part, virtually unheard of today, and yet all of these men are the forerunners of American liberty, early American culture would look very different than it looks today. Now, the question that Jeremiah asks is a rhetorical question. Notice what he says in the final verse of chapter 8, verse 22. Is there no balm in Gilead? In other words, is there no healing salve in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? In other words, he is saying that there is a healing salve. There is a healing ointment there. There is the physician that is able to apply that healing ointment to the nation. And if this is the case, then why is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Why, if there is such a physician, if there is such a healing, why are we not healed? Israel at this time was being ravaged by false teachers and false pastors the word of God in its purity and accuracy was no longer being administered to the people, much like during the days of the Roman church, during the Middle Ages, and much like the libertine churches of modern America today. There's a lackadaisical approach to the worship of God. There's no longer the severity and the fear of God and the humility before God any longer, because the pastors have fallen away from what God has required. The truth was there, to be sure, because everyone had scripture, but it was being perverted by interpretation. It was being perverted by the wicked men who at this time had commandeered the pulpits of Israel, just like wicked men today have commandeered the pulpits of America. Since wicked men do wicked things, and this is a principle, wicked men do wicked things. And because wicked men do wicked things, those that do wickedly can only be identified as evil since the tree is always known by its fruit. As a result of these wicked men spewing out perverted wicked doctrines of evil, they were unable to bring the people to proper repentance. They were unable to identify the bomb of Gilead and they were not able to call the great physician of souls. And this kept the people from being healed of their sin. In other words, the apostate churches with their apostate coin-operated libertine pastors could not adequately bring the congregation to the great physician for the healing of their souls, which resulted in the nation remaining sin-sick and unresponsive to the Great Commission. Therefore, if the people could not be transformed, surely the family and then the nation could not be transformed either. And this is why Jeremiah states in verse 18, when I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint in me. The prophet's heart was faint because the people were without a true shepherd which would feed them with the cure for their spiritual ailments. When they came before the Lord to hear the word of deliverance within the assembly of the apostate church, they would get nothing of substance. 
They were not being challenged to do what God had called them to do. Instead of the bomb of Gilead, they received more than just a placebo. You know, one would think that if you're not giving them the truth of the word of God, you're giving them a placebo, something false. But they were getting more than something false. They were getting a poison pill, a pill that would destroy them and their nation. As a result, their souls and the souls of their nation languished for direction, hope, and comfort. And yet, they had come to the house of the Lord. They came to church to find direction. They came to the church of Jesus Christ to find hope, to get comfort, and yet they found none. This was the place where one would expect to find direction, hope, and comfort. This was the place where God was supposedly directing the people for the healing of their souls and the realignment of the nation God would. This was the place where they would find comfort because the salvation message was grace alone apart from the works of the law. But all they found was half-truths, perversions, and misdirected doctrines bolstered by empty ritual. But the real horror in all of this, and the real horror for our modern-day congregate members, is that for the most part, they were happy with what they were getting. They were satisfied because they didn't really want the truth because sometimes the truth is hard. God tells you to do a thing. He expects you to do a thing. He doesn't expect you to say, well, you know, philosophically, I'm a little bit on the other side of that. And what we do when we begin to segregate theology and philosophy, we become Thomists from the years of Thomas Aquinas when he separated theology from philosophy. Oh, I know God has said to do this, but you know what? I really don't think that's what he meant. So they didn't really want the truth. Instead of embracing the hard truths of repentance and faith toward God, these people have heaped to themselves teachers who would tickle their ears and they would cry to them, peace, peace, when there was no peace. Oh, Jesus loves you, don't worry. You have peace with God through Jesus Christ. But there was no peace. And once apostasy reaches a fever pitch and there's no longer any direction or comfort, when there's no longer any hope, the people look to the world for direction, hope, and comfort. They look to Dr. Phil, they look to Oprah, they look to MSNBC or Fox News or the political pundits. Because there's no hope any longer found in the church. They're looking elsewhere. And this is where we find ourselves today. Israel's situation, however, was somewhat different. To their credit, the people actually wanted to hear the word of the Lord. Sadly, the priests were unable to bring the word of the Lord to them. And as a result, the people of God languished. And that's what Jeremiah was so upset about. He said, the people are languishing. They're languishing for want of spiritual bread the great physician of souls and the holy comforter of Israel was being kept from them. And this was why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. This was the situation in Israel during the darkest of time. And this is the situation just before the dawn of the European Reformation. And this is why Jeremiah asks, is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? That was the question that really answered itself. Because surely there was the healing message of the gospel within Israel, but it was being eclipsed by the wickedness of the priests and the false prophets. In God's house, there was to be healing. 
That's what was to come from the pulpit. The healing message of the gospel for individuals so that they would then heal their families, go into the church, bolster the church, and then go into the nation. Because in God's house there should be healing. And so Jeremiah, in astonishment, wonders why there is no balm of healing in Gilead. Why there is no balm of healing a reference to the house of God. The remedy for the cure of men's souls, which would translate into a national remedy, should be found in the church, but it's not. Today, the God of Scripture is rejected and replaced with another Jesus. Furthermore, God's restructuring law is also now rejected and replaced with man's law, or natural law, or positive law, or administrative law, but it's no longer the law of God. Consider the indictment and the judgment. From Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 10, and then Jeremiah chapter 23. Notice what Jeremiah says. God is speaking here. He says, many pastors, not a few, many pastors have destroyed my vineyard. They have trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pastor, saith the Lord. Wherefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people, ye have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doing, saith the Lord. And then in Jeremiah twenty-two, twenty-two, The wind shall eat up all thy pastors, and thy lovers shall go into captivity. Surely then shalt thou be ashamed and confounded for all thy wickedness. So not only did the pastors not feed the flock of God with the healing balm of Gilead, they never even asked for his counsel since they were taking their counsel from worldly idols. Note the indictment once again. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 8. The priests say not, where is the Lord? No, they're not even asking, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. They were finding their knowledge elsewhere. They were not seeking the face of Christ. And this was the situation during that period. But it was not to continue. There was to be a time where God would provide true pastors to replace the hirelings once Christ entered into the world at his coming. And Jeremiah anticipates this time in chapter 3, verse 15. Notice the promise of God to direct, to comfort, and to give hope. And I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. This was to be realized in the future during the New Testament age. And although God had promised faithful shepherds during the New Testament era, there would still be periods of apostasy where the bomb of Gilead would no longer be available within the organized church. Such were the days of the Reformation, when the Roman church ruled the realm of Western civilization. The Reformers understood that the people were not being taught about the dangers of sin, nor were they being led to the great physician for sin's healing. They were being led to the priest. They were being led to the Pope. They were being led to ritual. They were being led to all of these things, but they were not being led to Christ. They understood that the work of mortification, reformation, and social reconstruction was a work of God, and without the regenerating spirit at work in men, women, boys, and girls, nothing would happen. It first begins with the regeneration of men's souls. They also understood that true mortification of sin 
is a duty of the individual with the aid of the Spirit and not through empty ritual as was commanded by the Roman Church. So once that transformation, once that regeneration change came upon an individual, once that transformational change, the the change of mind, the change of attitude occurred in the hearts of men, then everything follows. Cultural change follows. And this was and is a fundamental fact. You must be born again. Your mind must change. Your passions must change. They must be redirected. If there is no desire for cultural change, it only means that there was never any real transformational change in the hearts of men. You cannot be born again and say, well, I'm very happy with the affairs of the world. I mean, even non-Christians are not happy with the affairs of the world. True regeneration results in a comprehensive embracing of the sovereignty of God and the commission to disciple nations. And that is what is lacking today, just as it was lacking then. When Christ is not adequately declared for the cure of souls, nothing changes. As the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, one of my favorite writers of the Puritan age, stated, he said, Christ must be set forth. Set forth Christ. Here's the Christ, your only hope of salvation. In Luke chapter 10, Christ shares the parable of the Good Samaritan in order to expose the futility of ceremonial and ritualistic activities and worldly pursuits as a substitute for substantive salvation. Note the priest as well as the Levite do not assist the man who had been beaten by robbers. It was interesting in meditating upon this in Luke chapter 10 we see that the priest has to represent the church, the ecclesiastical leaders. The Levite, you might think, also an ecclesiastical leader, but the Levite was given a special commission. He was to judge as well. So you find that neither the priest or the Levite was able to assist or was unwilling to assist the man who had been beaten by robbers. And therefore we see that there was no truth from the church and no justice from the Levite. Not only did they not want to help the man, they were unable to. Only the Samaritan, the type of the Lord Jesus Christ, was both willing and able to cure the man of his wounds by pouring in oil and wine, both a symbol of the gospel and the anointing of the Spirit. Notice Luke chapter 10, verse 34. And went to him, the Samaritan went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine in, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him, and took care of him. The physician was taking care of him. Now a second lesson to be learned from this parable concerns the mission of God. He's taking care of him. This mission of care, the mission of the church, is to first care for the souls of its people, so that they can become healthy soldiers in the culture war. Let me repeat that. The mission of the church is to care first for the souls of its people so that there would be a strengthening of the soul of their people, direction, hope, and comfort. So that, you see, there's an end, there's a reason behind it. So that they can become healthy soldiers in the culture war. Not so that they would be pew warmers, but that they would be soldiers. The cure of souls comes first, but it's only the beginning of the mission of God and the church. 
Only after the saint is redeemed from sin and is given the hope and assurance of Christ's victory over all things in addition to their sin can he or she be productive in the battle of ages, the battle of, for the culture. The European Reformation overturned the Roman idea that salvation can be gained by the practice of ritual and ceremony and began to focus on changing lives by curing them of their sin through the exposition of the word which would in turn change their world and life view. Now once their world and life view focused upon the kingdom of God and the glorification of Christ as king over the entire earthly civilization, a global reformation could begin in earnest. The Puritans picked up on that idea. And they coined the phrase, the cure of souls. That's what they focused on. By bringing individuals to confession and repentance, they were able to provide the balm of Gilead, which would cure their soul and from there flow out throughout the nation. Never did the reformers before them substitute true repentance with ritual, neither did the Puritans. True repentance was what was needed Consider some of the particulars of true repentance. And this is pretty much what people don't want to hear anymore. It's the hard truth. Repenting of our sins. Confessing our sins. Thomas Watson sets forth some of the particulars of true repentance. as first, sight of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin, shame for sin, hatred of sin, and then finally you turn from sin. So, sight, you first have to see it, then you sorrow for it, Then you have to confess it. You're ashamed because of it. Then you begin to hate it. And then you have to turn from it. Without each of these components, there can be no repentance. There can be no no sure fire cure for your soul. But the crux of repentance, the linchpin to deep healing, is confession. Theologian Martin Sobretti makes this observation. He says, Abandon all preconceived notions that the word confession might bring to mind. Abandon them all, no matter how ingrained. Confession is something that must be recovered in its biblical fullness with its importance properly assessed and its culture-wide abuse identified, indicted, and rejected. So without confession, there can be no repentance. And without repentance, there can be no restitution. Without restitution, there can be no cure. And without cure, the soul is plagued with hopelessness and doubt and becomes inert in the battle for the culture. If you are not cleansed through confession and repentance, you cannot be in the battle. You cannot be productive as a Christian. There's been a long progression throughout history dealing with confession. Some good, some not so good. As far back as the second century, the early church age, confession of sin was a public event. Just think about that. A public event. Each member would publicly confess their sin before the entire congregation. They have to stand up and confess. Very awkward. R.J. Rushton, he points this out. He says, each sinner, each person who had offended against the law of the community, against the Christian standard of conduct, stood up, at the service the week following the offense and made public confession of his sins. Now this, of course, posed many problems. 
Some folks were uncomfortable and could not speak without fumbling for words or perhaps even sobbing, while others went on and on and on. I don't know if you've ever heard this. Somebody gets up to give their testimony. I was this kind of a sinner. I did all these horrible things. And go on and on and on in detail about their sin as if they were proud that they confess even the most egregious sins. And yet, but look at me now. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a forgiven sinner. This took so much time that after the service, the only thing remembered was the sins confessed and not the sermon message. After some time, the method of a confession was relegated to the private realm. Sins would be confessed to the elders, or in the case of Rome, to the priest. The sins would be then stated publicly by the pastor or the priest, publicly before the entire congregation. This too was problematic, since it disrupted the service, and once again, all that was remembered was the sins of the people and not the word of God. And then people would be talking about, hey, look at what somebody did. And they'd be whispering. And it's a mess. By the 5th century, Pope Leo made confession a private matter, which was to be held in strict confidence by the priest. And this too had its problems. Knowing that all sins were hidden from public view assured the sinner that he or she was protected from shame. This would, of course, result in false assurance. The sinner would, therefore, not be too concerned about repentance since they could just confess their sins privately in secret each week and go on sinning. Just to go back in private and say, I'm sorry, I did this, and then come back the following week, and I did the other thing. And there'd be no shame. There'd be no real, real, real repentance. Confession became the priority, not the mortification of sin. Theologian Joseph Hartinane comments, he says, before, religion was God-centered. Before, whatever was not conducive to the glory of God was infinitely evil. Now, that which is not conducive to the happiness of man is evil, unjust, and impossible to attribute to the deity. Before, the good of man consisted ultimately in glorifying God. Now, the glory of God consists in the happiness of man. Before man lived to glorify God, now God lives to serve man. We live in a chaotic Christian realm. The Reverend Almay explains further, he says, the Bible reveals that our felt needs are not our real needs. Say that again. The Bible reveals that our feelings are not what we really need. Even though we feel we need something, The Bible says that may not be true. Notice what he says. David felt that he needed Bathsheba. God said David's need actually amounted to despising the word of the Lord, according to 2 Samuel 12.9. Simon, the sorcerer, felt the need to lay his hands on the people and give them the Holy Spirit. God called Simon's felt need wickedness, full of bitterness and captive to sin, according to Acts 8, 22 and 23. Saul felt the need to murder the Lord's disciples. God called it persecution of him, according to Acts 9, 4. Peter felt the need to separate himself from the Gentiles. Paul said Peter's anti-Gentile inclination was hypocrisy and not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, according to Galatians 2, 13 and 14. The Bible is clear that man's real need is for redemption from sin. It never suggests that we need to be saved from the sin of our environment or from the sin of another individual. The real problem, he says, 
is rebellion in the face of a loving creator, end quote. Biblical confession for one's own sin and transgression is essential in order to fulfill our calling unto God for the Great Commission. In order to be forgiven, we must own our sin. If it, you, can't, you can't say the devil made me do it. You can't say my mother made me do it. This one did it. Or the environment or whatever. I didn't get enough sleep last night. You know a lot of people say, well, uh, you know, my, my child my child is, is acting up because he didn't sleep well. Now, they might have been, had a rough evening. It might be part of it. But that's not the real root. The root is the child by nature, and that just exacerbated the problem that he didn't sleep last night, is a sinner. You deal with it biblically. Now, of course, if it's a sin against God, then we confess it to God alone. If we have sinned against another, then we must confess it before both God and the one whom we have transgressed against. This is the lesson of the prodigal son. Notice Luke 15, beginning in verse 17. And when he came to himself, the prodigal, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, notice, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. He confessing before God and before the Father. And am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Okay, so how do we assess ourselves before God? Well, we look at the scripture. Scriptures tell us this is sin, this is not. But how do we assist one another in the cure of souls? How do we work together as a body of Christ to assist one another in the cure of our souls. And this is where the rubber meets the road. Now, of course, Christ forgives us, but there's still that aspect of confession, repentance, and restitution. So the question is this. Is it the sole duty of the pastor, the elder, or the session, to care for the souls of their congregation, or do the members of the body of Christ have a duty to care for their brethren? And, of course, the answer is is simple. Certainly, the minister has a professional or a divine calling, but everyone is now called to be their brother's keeper, to help. Consider the analogy that Paul gives. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 12. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so is also Christ. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, Because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, Because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now God had set the members, every one of them in the body, as it had pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now, are they many members, yet one body? And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, so that our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God had tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacketh. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, did you get that? But that the members should have the same care for one another. 
The reformers and the Puritans understood, firstly, that their duty to care for one another was a covenantal obligation. They were bound by an oath to care for one another. They understood it to be their individual God-giving commandment to love one another in a God-honoring way and to be serviceable to one another, especially when any of them were overtaken in a fault. It was about working together as a body, as your physical, physiological body works together, your biological body working together. A sin-sick church is a defeated church. And a defeated church cannot powerfully advance the kingdom of God. Now, in order to restore the church as militant and triumphant, its members must confess their sins before God and then turn from them, killing them forever. If and when the sin is against a brother or sister, it must be confessed to them. According to Galatians chapter 6, whenever a brother or sister is overtaken in a fault, the members of the church who are mature are to come together and restore that individual to health and by doing so, the entire body of Christ is restored to health as well. We are called to watch out one for another and lovingly give as well as lovingly take admonition one from another. Now, according to another theologian, Barry Shane, he writes in this book called The Myth of American Individualism. Notice what he says. The Puritans believed that it was the legitimate and necessary role of local religious, familial, social, and governmental forces to limit, reform, and shape the sinful individual. It was assumed that these intermediate institutions would have to act restrictively and intrusively, if not coercively, for in no other way would this naturally deformed human being take on a godly and publicly useful shape. In other words, they believed that everyone was to work together. There should be no individualism. It wasn't about this family is off over here doing their thing, that family is off over there, this individual is off over there. No, everyone worked together. That was what the body of Christ was supposed to do. So on the Lord's Day, it's not so much that you come to worship or you sit in front of the video and you listen to us on Sermon Audio. And I understand, sometimes you have to. You don't have a church or you're sick or whatever. But part of worship is being together physically, seeing one another, looking at each other, seeing brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, as the image bearer of God. It was that community which really was important in worship, not just going through ritual. It was seeing each other. It was visiting with each other on the Lord's Day. The Reformation theology incorporated everyone in the duty of caring for one another. And confession was an important part in the maintenance of the health of the family, the church, and the state. These were all part of the cure of souls. All believers were to care for one another. As Almay puts it, he says, Christians are not in the church for themselves or by themselves. If they are resting on the truths of Scripture and if they ask for a love for others, then the grace of God will work through them. So think about what that says. Have you asked God that you might have a love for others? You know, how do we pray? Oh God, give me this, give me that. I want this, I want that. Lord, give me a love for my brothers and sisters. Lord, help me care, really, really care 
for my brothers and sisters and direct me so that I would know how to actually care. Not just in my mind, but really care and be able to be strengthened to go out of my way to show that I care. The Apostle tells us this. First Peter chapter 4, beginning in 10. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now following the teachings of John Calvin, church leaders were commanded to place the care of souls among their primary responsibilities. Now this was done mostly from the pulpit through the preaching of the Word of God, but also through personal interaction with members of the body of Christ. Notice what Calvin says. He writes this. He says, The office of a true and faithful minister is not only publicly to teach the people over whom he is ordained a pastor, but as far as may be to admonish, exhort, rebuke, and console each one in particular. While the grace of God was stressed in the work of confession and repentance, so too was the believer's responsibility. The Reformed teaching led the saint to earnest devotion, prayer, earnest self-examination, sacrificial service one toward another as active members in the society of the church and in the society at large. You don't just check in and then check out. That's not the church of Jesus Christ. That's not the body of Christ. And I think that's part of the reason why the church is so sickly and why we are finding ourselves in, in, in disarray and disheveled spiritually. You know, we truncate our own religion by saying, if I do my individual devotions every morning at 7 o'clock, and then at 7.15 I get ready for work, or what do I do this, and then in the evening, and... and and that's it. Well, that's not it. It's bigger than that. It's more than that. It's more comprehensive than that. It's about the interaction of the body of Christ. The reformed doctrine of the priesthood of all believers placed everyone in line to serve and to care one for another. And this would ensure the health of the institutional church as a result of sincerely caring for souls. We need to think about one another. Once that happens we can be assured of the health of the church of Jesus Christ when we sincerely care for one another. The Reverend Alma ends with this. This is his quote. He says, quote, Caring for souls means not only comforting fellow believers, but also encouraging them through faith to patiently endure with them the same suffering. Caring for another soul often includes sharing the comfort God has given you amid similar suffering. To confine all talk of one's suffering to the closed office of a counselor is to miss opportunities for caring for each other's souls. We are called to encourage, exhort, and comfort one another. Never is it to be a one-way encounter where the person behind the desk, the therapist or the counselor, is paid to do the encouraging, exhorting, and comforting. We all have a counseling commission, a commission to encourage, to exhort, and to comfort. In order to survive and flourish, I believe the church must return to the biblical method of the cure of souls 
And through this and only this can she, through this and only this can she once again become the glorious city upon a hill that the Puritans longed for to the glory of God, transforming men as well as nations. Amen.